0: All right, brothers and sisters, let's take out God's Word, take out our Bibles, and look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to use one on the pew in front of you. I think it'll be more helpful, more beneficial to listen as you read along. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, in one sense, it's easy for me to get up and preach this morning after what we just did, after singing those songs. After hearing that communion meditation, taking communion together, your heart's full. It's easy to get up and and proclaim God's word after that. It really is. But there's another sense in which this is hard. This particular text is a tough one for me to preach, actually. Because Paul is teaching in our text this morning that churches should take care of the financial needs of their ministers. This is typically a sermon that I would want to preach at another church. Trying to encourage them to take care of their minister, right? Because preaching it at your own church almost seems self-serving. The, the world looks at ministers that they see on TV, quote-unquote preachers, who speak to thousands and have audiences of millions on the TV asking for money so that they can finance their fancy clothes and their amazing cars and their private jets. And the world is rightfully disgusted at such things. But here Paul actually says that a church should take care of its minister. Now, I want you to know that this church takes wonderful care of me and my family. Wonderful care of me and my family. All of you, the church, you take wonderful care of us. I am not campaigning for a raise here this morning. We finalized our budget just over a month ago. We won't vote on a budget again for another 10 or 11 months. This is not about that at all. The church takes wonderful care of us. But this is God's word. And we are going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. And this is simply the next text. One of the beautiful things about going verse by verse through the Bible is you come to a hard text and you give it to the people and you just stand behind it and say, it's God's word, right? If if you do your job as a preacher right, that's the way it should come across. You go through verse by verse in a book of the Bible, and whatever's coming next, I mean, you guys can see. You guys can see what's coming next week, after this week. You can look ahead, and if you look ahead and you see a hard text, you you start thinking, oh, I wonder what he's going to do with that one, right? And then if he skips over it, if the preacher skips over that text, you're like, wait a second, We we were going verse by verse, and you just skip. So we can't skip over this text. It's the next text. It's God's Word, not mine. It's my duty to preach all of God's word unashamedly. And if I do my job right, you're going to get God's words, not mine. If the preacher, no matter who's preaching, no matter what church you're in, if the preacher does his job right, you should get God's words, not the preacher's. We're not here to hear what a person has to say. We want to know what does God have to say to me this morning? What does God have to say to me and my heart? It doesn't matter what other people have to say. I mean, we are here for one another in that sense, right? But when you stand up here, it is not about your words. It's about what God says. And so if I do my job right, you'll get God's words and not mine. So let's read the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 starting in verse 1, we'll go all the way to verse 14. Paul writes, "Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus?" As a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. A couple things I want you to see from our text. Just two main points. The first is this. Paul speaks in verses 4 through 6 about how ministers are normal people. Ministers are normal people, and you should expect them, church, to live like normal people. Look at verse 4 again with me. In verse 4, Paul says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? In other words, do not expect ministers to eat and drink differently than everyone else. They're just a normal human being. Or look at verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Churches should not expect ministers to refrain from marriage and having a family. They should not expect that. That should not be a requirement. Now, some ministers we've seen back in chapter 7, some ministers and pastors will be called to singleness by the Lord. Some ministers and pastors will be called by the Lord to forego marriage for an entire lifetime, to forego having a family and serve the Lord and dedicate his life to the Lord in that way. But it should never be a requirement get in all kinds of unhealthy situations and dangerous situations when a church requires that their ministers refrain from marriage and having a family. Now, thankfully, most Christian churches and most churches of Christ that I've experienced have a healthy view of this, but not all churches do. Most churches that I've experienced have a healthy view of this, that the minister is just another human being, another part of the body of Christ. When I first came here, a lot of people asked me, Hey, what should we call you? And I would be like, John? But what they meant was like, you know, brother or reverend or whatever. And I was like, just call me John. Like, say, hey, you, when you see me. I don't care. Whatever. Most churches have a really good, and our church does too, have a really good understanding that the minister is just a normal person, another part of the body of Christ, right? Paul will teach in 1 Corinthians 12. Lord willing, we'll get there in maybe a few months. Paul teaches in that chapter, the body of Christ is made up of all kinds of different parts, with all kinds of different functions. We're all part of the body of Christ, doing our part as members of it. The minister is just another human being, people just like you. Now, yes, there is a sense in which you should expect your minister or your ministers, I'm not the only minister here who is paid full time, you should expect your ministers to be men of integrity and character, men above reproach. There is an expectation, a biblical expectation, that the minister, the pastor, is to lead in following Jesus, right? To be the lead follower, so to speak. You know, do as I do, follow me as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul will say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's the first verse in 1 Corinthians 11. Can I say that with a clear conscience? I've got to ask myself that. I should be able to. A minister should be able, with a clear conscience, to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do as I do as I follow Christ. Come along. Let me show you how to do this. So there is an expectation, a biblical expectation, for a minister to be a spiritual leader, right? But you cannot expect your minister to be Jesus. You cannot expect your minister to be Jesus. To be Jesus. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous when you put it like that. But there are a lot of churches that have a culture where they expect their minister to be perfect and never sin. And so the, there's a culture created to where if a minister does sin, and we all sin, we're all human beings, if a minister, minister does sin, he has no way to confess it, no way to tell anyone, no way to restore what he has his broken. And that can lead to some very dangerous situations over time. You cannot expect your minister to be Jesus. We sin. We have emotions that go up and down. We have personal struggles. We must grow in holiness, implying that we're not there yet. There are ways in which I need to grow. We have a number of weaknesses. And so, therefore... There will be times when you have to forgive your minister. Now I'm going to say your minister a lot this morning in kind of third person because this is, more, this is about more than just me, right? It's not just about me. I'm not the only minister serving here, paid to serve here. And there are those listening online for whom I am not their minister. Uh, perhaps you might move to an, another location, live somewhere else later in your life, and You would have another minister, right? I'm not going to just refer to myself here, even though for many of us I am your minister. But there will be times when you will have to forgive your minister. There will be times when you will have to be patient with him. There will be times where he will be needy. He will need rest, vacation, and breaks at times. He will be strong in some areas, but he will be weak in others. Understand that. Your minister will be weak in areas. I'm so blessed to be at a church that had the two previous ministers before me stay for such a long period of time. And I guarantee you we're different, right? All three of us. Brother Terry, Brother Martin before him, we're different. We might have some of the same strengths, but we're going to have different strengths, different weaknesses. There are going to be areas where you're going to look at me and you're going to say... Terry was really strong in that area, and you're, you're weak, right? It's just going to happen. It's natural. There going to be weaknesses in some areas. So your ministers are normal people. Expect them to act like it, but also treat them like it. Treat them like it. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, number one, create an, an encouraging atmosphere where your ministers feel okay repenting of and confessing sin. Where your ministers feel okay admitting, yes, I am weak in that area, I need help, right? Create an atmosphere like that, but also, it's not just about the encouragement. It's also about the accountability. This past week, a report came out that a very high-profile minister, very high-profile author, Christian leader, who's already passed away, the report came out that during his lifetime, he was living a double life. In public, he was blessing all kinds of people with his speaking and his writing. In private, he was sexually abusing women that were not his wife. In private, he was using funds from the ministry to satisfy his sinful sexual urges. And when this came out, of all the things that he has written and said that has blessed so many people, all of that has now been discredited. What you see there in that particular instance and so many others like it, is that that person was a human being, but people didn't treat him like it. Those around him, those closest to him, did not treat him like someone who was susceptible to sin. They did not push in as hard as they should have on certain suspicious activities. They did not ask the tough questions. They did not have such a relationship where they could question what he was doing and how he was doing it. There was not an expectation that that person is not Jesus. So that person is susceptible to sin. So I need, and every minister needs, an accountability from their congregation where you are willing to ask the tough questions. Where you are willing to push in hard. Where we don't trust each other 100%. Now listen to what I'm saying on that. That doesn't mean that we don't trust each other to a point to where we're vulnerable with one another. It doesn't mean that we don't trust each other to confess our sins to one another or to uh, confide in one another. That's not what that means. What I mean is we don't trust each other and I don't trust myself because we're human beings and we're all susceptible to sin. Every time some high-profile figure comes out that they, they committed adultery, we should not look at them and say, oh, how sinful other people are. No, we should get scared. And we should say, that could be me if I'm not careful. That could be me if I don't guard my heart and have other people to help me guard my heart. We are all susceptible to sin. We are all weak spiritually, the minister included. And so your ministers are normal people. Expect them to act like it, but also treat them like it. But probably the main point from our text This morning is where Paul tells us a church should provide financially for its minister. A church should provide financially for its minister. Look at verse 14, which is probably the um, summary verse of the whole passage this morning. It's all right there in that one verse, essentially. Paul says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Notice how Paul said the Lord commanded The Lord commanded, this is Jesus he's talking about. Jesus actually spoke about this during his ministry. In Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus sends out the 12 apostles to preach and evangelize, and in Luke chapter 10, as he similarly sends out the 72, he tells them, don't worry about your needs. You will find people who will take care of you. And then he says this, for the laborer deserves his wages. The laborer deserves his wages. Now, in verse 14, Paul is saying what Jesus meant there was those who proclaim the gospel should receive a living from those who benefit from their proclamation of the gospel. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so the lesson for us is a church should do all it can to provide a living for its ministers so that they can then focus full time on proclaiming the gospel and all that that entails. A church should do all that it can to provide a living for its ministers so that they can then focus full-time on proclaiming the gospel and all that that entails. Now, Paul uses a number of illustrations here. This text is really fun to preach on another level because Paul gives me my illustrations for me. I don't have to come up with a lot of illustrations this morning. Paul's using a ton of them. Let's look at a few of them. Verse 7, Paul uses three illustrations in one verse here. Gift to the preacher. Verse 7, he says... Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Think about that. A soldier goes into service for the country, for the army, right? He doesn't have to go make his own money. They take care of his needs. They take care care of his expenses, his physical needs, his food, right? He doesn't go into the army and then they expect him to, to... provide for himself. No, the the king or the president or whoever is over the army, the army itself provides for that soldier so the soldier can focus on doing the work of a soldier, not on providing for himself. Also in verse 7, he talks about a gardener or a farmer. He says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, right? That wouldn't make any sense. Plant a vineyard and then you can't eat any of it? No, of course. The planter shares in the fruit Or that the shepherd tending a flock, presumably of goats or something of that nature, it says, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Same principle, right? Of course they would. Of course they would take part in that. Then go down to verses 9 and 10. In verses 9 and 10, he refers back to the Old Testament law. Now, there is a law in the Old Testament for the Israelites that God gave them that said, Do not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So picture this. There's a man who's plowing his field, right? And he's got an ox leading the plow, but he's selfish and he wants to keep every last bit of that grain for himself and his family to sell or to use themselves. Don't want that ox eating any of it. So they put a muzzle on that ox's mouth so he can't open it. He can't get any food. So originally, this is a commandment that God gives for the ethical treatment of animals, to keep people from being so selfish that they abuse their own animals who are working for them. But Paul says there's a deeper meaning there. This is deeper than that. Paul says, is is it just for oxen that God is concerned? Is he not concerned for us when he says that? Do not muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. So down in verse 11, you see Paul applying it. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And so he applies the Old Testament to our current situation. Part of the reason we give as a church is to provide a salary for the church's ministers who are dedicating to serving the church. It's part of the reason you give. It's not, not the only reason you give. It's not 100% of your offering that goes into that, but our church budget is publicly available. It's no secret. Part of the reason you give as a church is to provide a living for those who dedicate their lives to serving the church. then he goes on and uses one more example in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He talks about priests in the Old Testament. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Do you ever wonder what happened to the animals who were sacrificed in the Old Testament? Or the food and grain offerings that were brought? Part of those offerings went to the priests to provide for their own needs. See, the way God set things up, if you remember, all the way back in the Old Testament, when they're coming into the Promised Land, the Levite tribe had no inheritance among the people. And so the people from the other 11 tribes provided for the Levites out of what they made. They provided for the Levites, and the Levites was a whole tribe that God chose for himself, set them apart, and said, they're going to be dedicated to serving me in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And so Paul says this principle applies to the new covenant in churches and their ministers. And so part of the reason that we give to the church is those offerings, just like in the Old Testament, those sacrifices, part of it, your offering to God, goes to take care of those who are serving the church. Now there are important exceptions to this. There are some important exceptions to this. Some men are independently wealthy, wealthy and are able to tell their church, I don't need a salary from you. I'll just preach, and you use that money for something else. Some men are able to do that, right? I'm not one of them. You need to know that. I'm not one of them. Um, but some men are, right? There are, there are, I know many high-profile authors who also preach and pastor at churches, and um, they, they make so much money from their books, they just tell their church, hey, I, I don't need a salary from you, you spend that money on something else. Uh, on the flip side, there are some churches that simply cannot afford to support their minister full-time. Not every church can do this. Right? They give what they can, but some, some smaller churches, they can only afford to pay a part-time salary to their minister, and so he has to go get another job and be bivocational. My granddad preached at a, a small church right outside of Glasgow, down the road, not too far from here. Uh, for his, his entire life, he was bivocational. The church was small. It could not afford to pay to support him and his wife and their family. And so he's bivocational his whole life. For most of his life, he ran a general store through the week and then preached and taught on the weekends, right? And then later on, he, he did electrical work. Paul, the Apostle Paul, made tents for a living. That's how he made his living. And you can see in our text how Paul does not take the right to receive a salary, to receive money from the churches he is serving. He, he forgoes that right. You see it in verse 12, he voluntarily went without a salary from any of the churches that he was serving. Nevertheless, Paul does tell those Corinthian believers that the norm should be that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And he grounds it in all kinds of illustrations and even the words of our Lord Jesus. Now, I said earlier, the idea is for those who proclaim the gospel to get their living Get their living from those who benefit from their proclamation of the gospel. So, let me spend just a little bit of time telling you why this benefits the congregation. How this arrangement benefits you, the congregation, to where you pay a minister, you pay him enough to focus full time on ministering and serving the church. How does that benefit you as the congregation? All right? My wife and I, we are so thankful that the church wants me to serve full time. So thankful for that. The elders set my salary. and The church does a wonderful job taking care of me. Again, thank you so much for making this possible. Your generosity makes this possible. But Let me go over the benefits to a church, not just this church, but to any church, of having a full-time minister. And in this church, we are blessed to have two full-time ministers and even some part-time ones. Number one, I am able, because I'm full-time here, I am able to give myself first to God and then to you. This is absolutely essential. This takes heart-level work. I have to give myself to God first so that my ministry can be an overflow of my time spent with the Lord, of my relationship with the Lord. Because if it's not, you will notice. If it's not, you will suffer. If it's not, you will see the drop in quality. If I ever reach a point to where I am too busy to cultivate a private prayer life daily, to spend daily time in the Word, seeking the Lord, pursuing the Lord from my heart. If I ever get to the point where I'm not doing that, I believe you're going to notice the drop-off in quality, not only in teaching and sermons, but in pastoring and uh, just the the general overall well-being of me and the congregation. I have to give myself first to God and then to you. This takes heart-level work. There are men who do this for money, who are not giving their heart first to the Lord. And I think congregations will notice the difference if they've seen both. We we take this principle partially from Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Let me read to you four verses in Acts chapter 6 that highlight this idea that the the minister is freed to focus on what God has called him to do because the congregation allows him to focus on that. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, what's going on here? Early church, Jesus has just risen back from the dead, ascended to heaven. Lots of people are converting and believing in Jesus, and slowly but surely it's growing, right? But with more people becomes more administrative issues, more chances for people to fall through the cracks, right? And specifically, they mention widows here. The early church did a wonderful job taking care of those who could not take care of themselves, who could not provide for themselves. And so the early church is pooling their resources. They're taking care of the widows. They're giving them what they need, specifically giving them food regularly. Right? But early on, when, when it's starting to grow, all of a sudden some people are being left out. That's where we are here. And then the next verse says, And the twelve, the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said... It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now notice, the apostles rightly saw that God had called them primarily to prayer and to ministry of the word. And if they neglected that duty, the entire church could crumble. That was what God had called the twelve apostles to focus on. So they say, it is not right if we were to neglect that for this. Now, this over here, this need of the widows and serving tables, it's a legitimate need. It's a, a good need. It's something that needs to happen. But the apostles cannot sacrifice a focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. To do that. And so they, they delegate it. They they put other men over that so that the apostles can focus on prayer and ministry of the word. Brothers and sisters, your generosity allows me to focus on that which the Lord has called me to do and the way that the Lord has called me to serve this church, particularly the ministry of the word. There are all kinds of things that will clamor for a minister's attention. But I have to keep my focus first and foremost on God and on having my relationship with God overflow into ministry of the Word to you in all kinds of different ways. And so I hope you see and you you feel and you experience the benefit of that. I hope and pray that you experience the benefit of allowing me to focus full time on that so that the, the spiritual benefits can come out to you. Not only am I able to give myself first to God and then to you, but second, I'm able to spend adequate time studying God's word. I cannot overstate the importance of this. There is a weight that is upon the person who stands up here and proclaims God's word to the people. Now, I'm not saying this because, you oh, like, great job, John. That's not what this is about. There's, There's a weight to doing this because this is God's word. When you stand up here to preach, you're telling people what God says. You're telling people what God thinks and what God wants for them. And woe to the person who does that wrongly. If I misinterpret God's Word and then I teach it that way and I lead some of you astray, I'm going to have to stand before the Lord for that. And that makes me weak in the knees. I'm going to have to give an account to God for the way that I taught His Word. And so I cannot overstate the importance of the fact that I have enough time, adequate time to study God's Word and to understand it rightly before I then go out and teach it to others. God will hold me accountable. The time you all give me to study is so very important and I will do my very best never to take it for granted. I hope and pray that you are reaping the benefits of that. Not only do I have time to study, I have time to devote to discipling others. And I'm not just talking about when someone shows up for church or Wednesday night Bible study or something like that. I'm talking about pouring in deeply to a a smaller number of people in the church so that they can grow, so that I can teach them everything that I have been taught in a way that I have actually been discipled so that over time, over a long period of time, that trickles out. Disciples are being discipled and then they go out and disciple others and that happens more and more exponential growth so that eventually the church is strengthened It grows in strength and holiness and love for God. And it's not only myself who does this, but it's my discipleship to my wife and her discipleship of other ladies. Because discipleship, in an intense way, is not anything you want to do male to female or female to male. You want to keep that within the same sex. It's a a blessing to be able to have the time to do that and to invest in people like that. I have the time to check on members and their families to minister to them pastorally, to visit them in homes and hospitals, to minister to the suffering, the sick, the dying, the grieving, or the lonely, to counsel those who have specific spiritual needs, to perform weddings and funerals. I have time to evangelize and to plan ministries or events and to represent the church in the community. All of these things fall under what God has called a minister to do as they serve a congregation. And I cannot overstate how much it means that I have the ability to focus on that full time. So thank you. Your generosity makes that possible. And I hope you realize you are not just investing in your ministers when you give to that work. You're investing in yourselves. You're investing in yourselves spiritually by allowing your ministers to focus on those things, to spend the time on those things, that they can then give it back out to you. But I want to end with verse 12. Look at the end of verse 12 with me in our text. At the end of verse 12, Paul says, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That is our charge this morning, brothers and sisters. Not just to me, but to you as well. God is charging us To lift the gospel of Christ to such a place of prominence in our lives that we would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in front of it. In whatever way God may call us, whatever comes in the future, the most important thing to us must be the gospel of Christ going forward and doing its work. May we as Christians be willing to endure anything rather than put an obstacle in in the way of that gospel doing its work. If it ever came to this, I would rather go find another way to make money than stop preaching the gospel and teaching and discipling and helping people. I would rather find another way to make money. Yeah, there'd be less time, but I'd rather find another way to make money if it came to it, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel going forth. Brothers and sisters, we all need to have this attitude. The most important thing is Jesus. The most important thing is not letting go of Jesus and helping others find Him and then helping others not let go of Him. That's the most important thing in your life if you're a Christian. More important than your job. More important than your family. More important than your greatest personal passion. It's the most important thing in our lives. We would endure anything before we saw an obstacle put in front of of the gospel, If we have to sacrifice our money, it's worth it. If we have to sacrifice our reputation, it's worth it. If we have to sacrifice our time, our energy, our possessions. Brothers and sisters, think with an eternal mindset. When we've been there for 10,000 years, will we look back on our time here on this earth and think, oh, I'm, I'm so upset that it was hard for us to make financial ends meet there for a little while. No, we will not think that. We will think, I regret not bringing more people to Christ. We will regret putting obstacles in the way of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, may we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus here. Jesus was willing to endure anything. Anything. There's a point in Hebrews where it says, you have not yet endured to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did. He was willing to endure the very worst suffering imaginable so that sin could not stop the gospel. He was willing to endure the very worst suffering imaginable so that Satan could not stop the gospel. Jesus endured more than we will ever know the spiritual agony on the cross of taking the full force of the wrath of God for the sins of the world, He suffered more than we will ever know. He sacrificed everything. His life, His blood, His breath, His energy, His reputation. Think of all the ways He was mocked and scorned and spat upon even after His death the way that He was mocked and laughed at. He sacrificed it all. Think of what he endured. Can we not endure lesser things for the sake of the gospel? Let's pray. Dear Lord, it's a a very humbling thing to preach this text as a minister, but God, this word is much bigger than me. It's much bigger even than our own church here, but God, it's it's a word to us from you, from Paul, and we pray that you would help us to heed it. God, we ask that you would help us to create a culture here where sin would not flourish, where secret sin would not flourish. We pray that you would create a culture of confession and vulnerability here amongst all of us, Help us to have relationships with one another where we are close enough to ask the hard questions, to push in when we feel resistance, to where we're close enough to confess embarrassing sins, sins that we would want to hide, but to confess them early before a small thing turns into a very big thing. God, we pray that You would help us to have a culture here where we know all of us are just people in need of Jesus' blood, and in need of a Savior. We pray that You would help us to create a culture here that Your name would be hallowed and glorified amongst our hearts, in our church, and that we would take it to others. Where we would never put an obstacle in in, in front of the Gospel to where we would endure anything rather than an obstacle being placed in front of the Gospel going forth. God, we love you. We are here for Jesus. We are living for Jesus. But God, there are all kinds of ways where we need help living more for Jesus. There are all kinds of ways we need help to make Jesus and the gospel that number one priority in our lives. Help us with that, God. Please help us. Our spirits are willing. Our flesh is weak. Help us. God, I thank you so much for the generosity of this church. I pray that you would bless them spiritually, materially. I pray pray that you would bless them in every way because of the blessing that they are to me and my family. And I know I speak on behalf of Adam and his family as well. Dwayne and Clay and the way that they are taken care of by this church as well. God, thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. It's because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus we can pray. In Jesus' name, amen.